So good morning, Eastside family. So I guess you've kind of figured out that Karen and I are not with you this morning. We are in Baton Rouge right now celebrating Charlotte's fourth birthday. Look at them, Charlotte. Charlotte's having her fourth birthday this week. And this is her older brother, William, who is five. They're on spring break, so we're on grandparent duty this week. So in my place today, I've asked Mike Nichols to speak for, speak to us and speak in, in my place. And I want you to know that I didn't just ask him just to randomly speak, but I asked Mike to tell us and share with us his story, his testimony. And the reason for that is because our mission of making disciples of all nations can be, it can be intimidating. You may think, well, I can't do that. I'm not a preacher. I've, I'm really scared to preach a sermon. Well, kind of share with you the same thing I shared when Caitlin Epperson shared her story that Mike's not by profession a preacher. I think he'd probably tell you that. And as you're going to notice today, he's not going to preach a sermon. Mike today is going to tell you his story, the story of how God brought him to faith in Jesus Christ and the difference that that faith made and has made and is still making in his life. There's something powerful as a witness to the world when we tell our personal story of Jesus Christ and show how the gospel intersects in our lives. And so that's really what Mike is going to do today. Now, just on a personal note, Mike and Barry are very dear friends of mine and Karen. We have some incredible memories of, of camping with them. We have incredible memories of hiking mountains with them. I've had memories of being in thunderstorms on top of a mountain and exposed areas with lightning with Mike and I think also with Barry and then I have wonderful memories they're basically along with um, Matt Von Thune have been my hiking mountain hiking coaches Barry taught me the I guess you might call it the Colorado two-step how to have rest steps as you're making your way up a mountain that's pretty much is what helped me make my way up uh, hiking up a mountain so anyway, Mike, thanks so much for um, being willing to speak today. So I want to ask everyone to join me and Charlotte and William as we give a big welcome to Mike. Let's do it on the count of three. Ready? Going to clap. One, two, three. Yay, Mike. Yay, Mike. All right. Well, thank you and good morning. I, I had not seen that video yet. Um, when Eddie asked me to think about giving my testimony, oh wait, I'm supposed to point this right at my mouth, there we go, um, I wasn't sure why other than that my journey would most likely be pretty unique given my background. I did not grow up a regular churchgoer, did not attend a Christian college, and had never even heard of the Church of Christ until I met Barry while I was in college. I considered Eddie's request for several days, then I decided I'd do it. And although I don't expect to do nearly as well as Caitlin did several weeks ago, for example, I hope that you'll find this at least interesting and maybe even a little enlightening. Um, I was born in El Paso, Texas in 1962, so I'm at the very tail end of the baby boomers. My grandparents had immigrated to the U.S. from Mexico sometime in the early 20th century. So although I may not look like it, I am in fact one half Mexican by heritage. My mother's maiden name is Carbajal. Once in the U.S. in a little town called Fabens, my mommy and poppy, as we called them, uh, eventually had four daughters, of which my mother was the second. All of them were sent to Loretto Academy in El Paso for a formal Catholic education and often spent as much time there as they could because back home in Fabens could be a little boring. 
At some point, when my mom was 20 years old, she met the man who would become my father. Richard Nichols was in the Army, stationed at Fort Bliss, and he and my mom met at a dance or something, I'm sure. He was from Huntington, West Virginia, then is now a very poor part of the country, and I suspect he had joined the Army partly just to get away from home and the poverty. I'm told he was handsome and charming, and my mom fell for him. This is where I come in. At some point, it was discovered that my mom was pregnant. And although she was not underage, back then, even more so than today, this was an extremely difficult situation. And this is where it really got strange. My father tried to hide on base. And when my grandfather came to the post with my mom, they were told that there was no one on base with the name that he had given her. My father had given my mom a fake name and place of origin for himself calling himself by some exotic Italian-sounding name and saying he was from Florida. I don't know if this was because he was ashamed of his true origins or if maybe he was just wanting to play it safe in case something like what happened actually happened with my mom getting pregnant. But in any case, he was not the man he said he was. Needless to say, they found him. And as both... I promised myself I wouldn't get emotional... As both abortion and giving me up for adoption were quickly ruled out, what instead happened, remember this was 1962, was that my parents were forced to get married by a combination of the Catholic priest, my grandfather, and my father's commanding officer. While I'm obviously not saying I'm sorry to be here, it was not a great way to start a marriage. Yet somehow, in the midst of all this chaos, God was there. As Jeremiah 29.11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Within three years after I was born, my brother Ken and sister Yvette came along, but things were not going well. My dad had separated from the Army, and initially, due to his abilities and personality, he had nice jobs that could lead to a good career, but he would never stick with it. He would get bored and quit, find a new job somewhere else, but conveniently forget to tell my mom that he was now working elsewhere as he left for work each day. She would usually only find out when she called the office if she needed to speak to him and then hear that he had quit days or even weeks before. Then there would be an angry confrontation and the cycle would begin again. Eventually the job changing caught up with him and he was forced to take lower and lower paying work. What didn't change, however, was his taste. They never lowered. He liked to eat out and spend money we didn't have, using the newfangled credit cards that had just come out in the 1950s. And combined with his lowering income and my mother being a stay-at-home mom with no college degree, they fell more and more quickly into debt. As both the fights and their expenses increased, a divorce became imminent, and it finally happened in 1969 when I was about seven years old. In the end, I never saw my father again, and to this day, don't know if he's alive or dead. Right or wrong, I've never had a desire to find out. It didn't help that he eventually wound up doing the very same thing to several other women, leaving them all dead broke. When he left, my family was over $10,000 in debt. And $10,000 in 1969 is the equivalent of $82,000 in today's money. My mom, however, was determined to pay it off, and she went back to college and work, found a live-in maid to help raise us because Mexican maids could be found very inexpensively, and for the next many, many years was gone a lot, often in the evenings 
at night school or working. She eventually got a master's degree and wound up a school counselor, and in the meantime, she kept the family together. So we grew up without a lot of extras, and I know there were many times when my grandparents, who by this time had a successful furniture store business in Fabens, helped out with extra cash to pay the bills. We were reasonably happy, but as the oldest in a broken home, I decided that it was my uh, job to, uh, to help my mom out, and so I bossed around my little brother and sister for years, for which I'm still sorry. Uh, as far as for church, we were sort of nominal Catholics in that we only went very occasionally, mostly because either my mom didn't have the energy or because we three fought her so much about not wanting to go that she would just give up. But God was there too, waiting for me. In 2 Peter 3.9, we, we read, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I was very shy, and eventually in middle school figured out I was a brain, as they used to say, and started to live in that world, not really thinking much about home or my mom's problems, but just focused on myself. Partly, I'm sure, it was to help ease the pain of not having a dad in my life and not really understanding the whole situation. So I grew up without a lot of men around, and to this day, don't really know how to fish properly, for example. And I'm mostly self-taught in many of the things that dads typically teach their sons. Fortunately, I did learn how to play baseball, still my favorite sport, and even managed to hit one home run in my five-year career, but unfortunately, that caused me to swing for the fences from then on. Never hit another one. When I got to high school, the shyness slowly started to wear off, partly because I somehow managed to make the tennis team at the end of my freshman year. So now I was a brain and a jock. Well, sort of. Skinny tennis players were not looked upon with esteem like football stars are anywhere in Texas, even in border towns. I continued to get good grades and basically stay out of trouble, not so much because I was such a good kid, but because by this time my brother was starting to give my mom all kinds of trouble. He was two years behind me in school and had unfortunately started hanging out with some bad kids. He was skipping school, drinking, and smoking both regular cigarettes and marijuana. In the end, it took him two senior years before he was able to graduate, with my mom having to push and struggle with him all the way. When my sister and I talked about it later, we think that my parents' divorce had just affected him much more strongly than it did her or myself for some reason. He was the middle child, didn't do as well in school as he could have, didn't seem to have any other interests, and I think he was just lost and starting to act out. These troubles caused me to retreat even more from the family, and by the time I graduated, I was able to just leave the situation behind. I was a selfish young man, off to explore the world in college, and as I could neither afford to fly home very often, or even to call, remember how expensive long-distance calls used to be? I just disappeared into my own little world again. I got into the best school in the state, not A&M or UT, sorry guys, but although the academics were great, there was no possibility of a Christian education at Rice. Not that I was really interested in taking those kinds of classes anyway, I'm sorry to say. In high school, my best friend Sam from back home was and is a strong Catholic, but Catholicism just didn't appeal to me. The rituals, combined with everything being pretty much the same every week, held no appeal. I definitely didn't have the kind of Christian upbringing that Bill Althoff did, for example. I did, however, occasionally get involved in some youth group-type activities, 
uh, often because of Sam, and often, I have to say, because there were pretty girls attending these things. Still, even at this very early stage, despite my interest in science and learning and academia, I did feel like there must be a God. If nothing else, I just couldn't accept the premise that everything that we see and experience today happened by chance. I couldn't explain anything beyond that, but it was a start. My one meaningful religious experience in college was because of a young lady I dated my junior year. She was a Christian in the sense of the word that we understand it, a baptized believer who attended church regularly and who tried to interest others in her beliefs. I semi-grudgingly went to church with her one time to a Pentecostal church she wanted to see, and boy was that an experience. There was speaking in tongues and a lot of um, very lively moving about, I, I hesitate to call it dancing, and clapping and shouting and singing, the kinds of things you almost never saw in mass, for example. And it left me cold on the opposite extreme. Instead of being too staid and boring like mass, for example, it left me, oh wait, this one was just wild. And I couldn't help but feel that some, perhaps many, of these people were faking it for show or just caught up in the moment. But I now know that God was there too. For as we read in Matthew chapter 18, for where two or three gather in my name, there am I with them. So just before the start of my senior year, I met Barry through friends in Dallas. It was a quick hello, then I headed home until school started. And I really didn't expect to see her again. However, in October, she and these friends came to Houston to visit and we quickly began dating. The problem, of course, was that we were four hours apart. So we took to commuting on the weekends, and by the time of my graduation, I moved to Dallas and got a job. We were quickly talking about marriage, but religion wasn't really a topic of much discussion. Barry had fallen out of going to church for a while and had actually been studying the Jehovah's Witness faith with her then-boyfriend, but needless to say, and luckily for me, it didn't take. I had also changed my mind as to what I wanted to do for a career, and because of that was now planning to go straight to graduate school. I found a program in Northern Virginia that would accept me into their master's program without having, despite not having the same undergraduate degree. And so that became the plan. Young marriage, then a move 1,300 miles away to where we had no friends or family, and Barry married to a non-believer. Yikes. The good thing was, and God was definitely in this too, Barry wanted to get back to going to church. So after we got married in August, she wanted to find a church in Virginia once we moved and invited me to join her. Because I wasn't exactly anti-Christian, but rather mostly indifferent, I agreed in a limited way. This was my deal. She explained to me how many times a week and for how many hours Church of Christers went to church each week, which quite frankly appalled me. <laughs> I remember, remember, I was used to just one time a week, maybe, for an hour. So I agreed to go to two of the four events as I considered them. I believe I chose Bible class and worship on Sunday morning, but I didn't promise to go to either Sunday evening or Wednesday evening. Terrible of me, I know, but despite my attitude, God ultimately made it clear that he was in this process too. We checked out the ever-popular Fairfax Church of Congregation, Fairfax Church of Christ, I'm sorry, and the False Church Congregation, but neither appealed for one reason or another. However, by chance, or maybe it was God's timing, the Arlington Church of Christ was experiencing new growth in young professionals moving in for career jobs inside the Beltway. There were several couples, none with kids yet, and many singles, all of them roughly our age, 
And so we, and I in particular, in the context of this story, started making new friends. And before I knew it, I was voluntarily wanting to go to church more than just two hours a week, more than just the two hours a week that were in my unwritten contract. It was fun, hanging out with our new friends, going out to eat, having each other over to our very small, very expensive apartments, and before I knew it, I was a regular churchgoer. So I was learning, in classes and from the pulpit, things I had never heard before. And it was interesting, not bombastic, but not boring, and with no crazy antics going on in the aisles. I had never experienced a cappella singing before either. A cappella is how you pronounce that word. Other than my own feeble attempts at singing along with the radio. Remember radios? And I found that I liked the tenor part and could sing it. Our best friends eventually became Lloyd and Claudia Randolph, who had met when he was at Harvard Law and she was getting her doctorate in chemistry at MIT. That's the kind of congregation Arlington was. After I expressed interest in singing, Lloyd wound up teaching me the tenor part to many of the songs from our songbook, which to this day explains why I can sing the quite low and complicated tenor line to O Sacred Head. I never would have gotten that on my own. But I still wasn't baptized, and for a while didn't realize the need. I was still learning, even as we got more and more involved. Because it was a small congregation, I eventually even wound up teaching a few classes that I could sort of handle, on things like science in the Bible and the geography of the Bible. The class attendees were gracious and helped fill in my gaps in biblical knowledge when necessary. But then later, when it came time to discuss a round of new deacons, it became obvious that many in the congregation thought I was already baptized. So I had a decision to make. Was there any good reason why I shouldn't be baptized? Obviously there wasn't, but I felt like I needed to know more, so I did some studying and came to a fairly quick decision. I already believed in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and in Jesus sacrificing his life for mine as my Lord. So one Sunday in my mid-twenties, I finally accepted Christ into my life. And as it turned out, into a very cold baptistry, because the heater wasn't working and nobody knew it. But it was done. And as I stood there shivering, I realized I finally had a faith of my own. Not the faith of my parents, or of any schooling, or my friends, or even my wife, but of my own. It felt good to finally be there, with God who had always been waiting on me. Usually we read about us rejoicing in God, but we also know that he exalts in us as well. As in Zephaniah 3.17, where we read, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Now, you would think that after all that trouble that things would get easier. But although God had been in my life for a long time, Satan was, of course, just getting started with me. At about this time, I had finished graduate school, was working in my dream job at the National Geographic magazine, and we had recently bought an old but close-in house. Plus, we now had our first child, Jessica, on the way. Some of you remember her, actually not on the way, she was here. Some of you remember her as a sweet little three-year-old running around when we moved here in 1992. So we were already considering adding on to our home just to have room for a second child when Barry's job with MCI offered us the opportunity to move to Colorado. It was one of the most difficult decisions we had had to make to that date. But even though it meant leaving our friends behind, we ultimately made the jump to be closer to family in Texas, to live in a beautiful, less crowded area here, 
and as a bonus to get twice the square footage of what we had in Virginia. I felt like we had arrived. So here we were in Colorado 31 years ago with one small child and now another one on the way. Barry had her same position, just in a different place, and it took me a while to land a job in my field, but it simply wasn't the same. I think I also missed our friends more than I wanted to admit. And even though we still got back to visit them every once in a while in DC, it was hard. We settled on East Side pretty quickly. Even though the West Pikes Peak congregation initially appealed to me, mostly I think because their building reminded me so much of the building back in Arlington, my first church home. But we came here and then were shocked when on our first or second Sunday, a split in the church occurred. Some of you remember that. And I found myself wondering what in the world we had done and if we had made a terrible mistake. Nevertheless, we became somewhat active for about a decade while our kids were younger. And then life began to intrude ever more. I was working full time, got promoted a few times, was traveling some, when a series of events knocked us for a loop. First, I quit my job in 2004 for personnel reasons, basically a horrible boss that I refused to work for. Then I managed to crush off the tip of my right index finger in a garage door accident. Then came the worst. On March 12, 2008, I received a call stop, from my mom, screaming and crying that my brother Ken had been killed in a motorcycle accident in Phoenix where he had been living alone and occasionally homeless for over 20 years. He would never accept any help from any of us and had been living hand-to-mouth for most of his adult life. At one point, for 15 years, we had not even known where he was. He was only 44 years old when he died. And in the midst of all this, I made some terrible decisions that ultimately required a lot of undeserved forgiveness for myself and some serious Christian counseling for me to figure out who I was and what I was all about. This was also when I found out through talking to my mom some of the things I had shared earlier about my father, most of which I had not known before. It was a very dark time for us, and I have many people to thank for helping me to get through it. So I withdrew for a long time from everything I'd been doing, and only after some years did I feel like I could do anything at church again. So obviously I had not, in fact, arrived, but had instead let myself be deceived into thinking I was in control. Eventually, I think it was ultimately our worship ministers, Kent Rogers and John Hodges and Matt, who helped me start to get out of my new shell, and then Matt ultimately when he took a group of us to Ciudad de Angeles in 2011, and to which we've been going and leading ever since. I'm forever grateful to Matt for that trip. Without those people and those experiences, I might still just be milling around the edges of this church today, not really active, but just showing up each week and waiting for others to serve me. In starting to close, I want to say I think that what I've learned along my journey is that it's people and friendship that ultimately are what mattered the most to me in my spiritual walk. Even though, as a stereotypical guy, I find making close friends pretty difficult. Without the friends I have made along the way, I know I wouldn't be standing here today. There were people like Bob Potberg, who worked hard and mentored me for several years as we worked to keep a Wednesday night men's class going. And Bob Stevenson, who invited me to his Friday morning Bible studies, and which I went to for years. And Jeff Jones, who invited me to his Friday, sorry, (laughs) to his 14er climbing trips with the guys many times. 
Through people like them, I know that God, too, was sticking with me, always at my side, whether I acknowledged him or not. As I kept being gently pushed and prodded through others' words and actions so that I could see his effect in their lives, and I thank the guys many times for this over the years. Sometimes that's all it takes, kindness and goodness in God's name, to win somebody over. You never know what kind of effect your actions are going to have on someone else as they see your Christianity in action. And fortunately for me, I've seen far more godly examples than bad ones. I owe my eternal life to many people, including quite a few of you sitting in this room or watching on live stream. And to all of you, I say thank you, and may God bless you always. Remember, Jesus was a friend first to the ragtag bunch of confused disciples that he invited to join him on his walk, and they had no idea what they were getting into. Finally, I want to say please don't ever discount the work of the staff and the other elders we have here at Eastside, because they also have a huge influence on all of us, whether we are friends with them or not. As you know, we and our children have been through a lot of youth ministers here in the past many years, and of course we all pray that that cycle is done. Right, Kevin? Kevin's not here. And also a few worship and preaching ministers. But what I wanted to say was I know that we've arrived at a very good place with Laureen and Taylor and Eddie and Matt and Kevin and Sarah and Tom and many others, including all of you who volunteer in so many ways to help them out. So thank you and remember, God is always there. Remember, Jesus' very name from birth, Emmanuel, means God with us. And near the end of his life, in giving his great commission to his disciples, and therefore to all of us, never forget that, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, Therefore go and make disciples to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you this morning for friends. We thank you for our lives and for your people who we can count on to show us a better way, your way, to help guide us when we fail, when we stray, when we're lost, or when we just don't know what to do. We also thank you for your church which was established by your son through his life almost 2,000 years ago. May we always strive to follow his example of love and compassion as we attempt to teach the world about you through our words and actions reflecting yours. We pray these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the senior minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.